I've conducted over 50 interviews for this podcast, and I've never been more nervous than today. Today's podcast is about does race play a factor in business value and the saleability of a company? And so I'm sitting here thinking about all these questions that I have about this. How am I going to ask these questions without offending, without not being sensitive, especially given the situation we're in, you know, the, the, the protests and such at, at the time of this recording. I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to interview my colleague. My colleague is, is Jamar Cobb Denard. Not only is he just a great guy, he is so easy to talk to and he provides really a safe space to, to ask these questions. I had so many people say, tell me, you know, don't ask dumb questions. And unfortunately I'm not really certain what's a dumb question these days. So Jamar really, like I said, gave me the opportunity to ask all these kinds of questions. So a little bit about Jamar. He's like I said, he's a great guy. He's an attorney. He works, he's works with us at the business brokerage. Any sales position he's had, he's always been in the top 10%. He's been in just about every leadership program that we have in Indianapolis. He's just everywhere. Most recently, he uh, ran for the city of Lawrence mayor, lost just by, I think it was 180 votes. And their loss was our gain. And our practice is so much better because we have him. So I hope you enjoy this longer episode of Defenders of Business Value with Jamar Cobb Denard. Please welcome, please welcome, welcome. This is another episode of the Defenders of Business Value podcast. A podcast where we talk about what makes a business valuable. Learn the tips and tactics to increase your company's value that only veteran dealmakers know. And now, here's your host, Ed Misogland. I'm your host, Ed Misogland. I teach business owners how to build value and identify and remove risks in their business so that one day they can sell their business at maximum value when they want, how they want, and to whom they want. On today's show, I'm uh, I'm excited. I'm really excited about this this conversation. And to be honest with you, I'm I'm actually kind of nervous about it. And my guest today is Jamar Cobb Denard. So welcome to the show, Jamar. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Before you came on, I gave a high level overview of you. So can you talk a little bit about what Jamar is about and and how you're serving business owners? Sure. So, you know, I started my career in Indianapolis in 2003 in professional services and business services and have really taken that trail over the course of the last decade and a half by also getting my law degree and running for mayor of the city of Lawrence, primarily on making sure that we had a really great environment for small business to thrive. Um, so now I get the distinct pleasure of working with you, Ed, uh, <laughs> on a daily basis, <laughs> selling small businesses. But it's really been a great culmination, or I should say convergence of my background of doing leadership and small business consulting and sales consulting, and uh, also my legal training to be able to make sure that we get more small businesses sold, especially since you know there's so many retirees right now who are looking to exit their businesses. And obviously, this is the time in the next decade or so to make sure that there's a great wealth transfer and we continue. I mean, small business is driving our economy. And so we've got to make sure that that continues into the next generation. Yeah. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're in the practice. I'm, and I'm glad we're going to have this conversation. And I've done 53 
podcasts, all kinds of people of heroes to people that they hadn't heard of. But today we're going to top a topic that's a lightning rod right now, and that's and that is racism. I didn't sleep well last night when you agreed to come on my podcast. I, I was sitting there. The bad thing is I have I have my wife sitting there saying, you know, don't say anything stupid. Our marketing director, she says, don't say anything stupid. And <laughs> and I, and so I'm sitting there going, all right, well, how do I how do I avoid not saying anything stupid? But and that's part of the challenge and why I'm so grateful that you came on and and I'm here to to learn and and a lot of the things I wasn't aware of and and happy Juneteenth. I had heard of it. I didn't know enough about about it until till you agreed to come on. So it, it's fortuitous that we're we're talking today. That um, is it. Happy Juneteenth. Yeah, I don't know if it's happy or or what, but at least you and um, <laughs> you're recognizing it and we're. About it. Yeah, I can tell that you're very well researched. So you spent some time yesterday evening and you're like, you know, I'm going to look up all the things that I need to know and be very well prepared, which is great because you and I think a lot of other people who are open minded and ready to take on what the next generation needs from leaders who care about making sure that there's equity in our businesses and equity in workplaces. You're up all night thinking about this stuff. You're spending time doing the research. You're doing digging into what Juneteenth is and being sensitive enough to even ask the question, is it happy? Because there's a lot of folks who say, this is hogwash. It doesn't affect my business. It doesn't affect the value of my business. And they just dismiss it. But as leaders like you and others that I've talked to in the past two or three weeks who have really, really been impressive to say, hey, we've got to do better as humans to each other. And this is how it starts. So I'm really uh, appreciative and impressed. Thank you for that. And that leads us to the backdrop of I'm just going to ask my questions. And I and I was trying to, as I was thinking about it, I don't know what are the lightning rod things today. When we were talking about about you coming on yesterday, you know, I'm sitting there going, okay, I would have hired Jamar regardless of the color of his skin. I would have. You have, certainly have the qualifications. I think you're going to be a great deal maker. But then I'm sitting here going, did he, even though I told him I thought the African-American community was underserved in this capacity of buying and selling companies, did I do it wrong? Did you take it, oh, he's taking advantage of my ethnicity to capitalize on the business? And and I didn't want that. And, and But my point was that now all of a sudden I'm, I'm looking at those things that I, I – should I have said something different? So that's where the conversation begins is how do we start these conversations? So, so one, I would just go ahead and start them. Uh, <laughs> real, com- real complex. Right. It's, it's okay to sound stupid or say something that you don't know. And, and you don't even have to apologize ahead of time or bumble over it. And you're not the only person who's thinking this and feeling this. Like uh, I feel like I've had a very similar cadence of conversation with other non-black or non-minority leaders over the last two or three weeks. And they're like, I just don't want to say the wrong thing. Well, the fact that you're concerned about saying the wrong thing means that you care enough to have an open conversation. So, you know, if you're talking to somebody, especially... So so with me, you've got an ally for white allies, if that's the best way to put it. I was the only black person in my elementary school for two years and they have this thing called predominantly white institutions or PWIs. So essentially, 
unless you're going to a historically black college university or work in a black business, which there are less of those than any other type of business, if you're going to be a professional in America, you're in predominantly white institutions. So the um, African-Americans that we as professionals, whether you're black or white, that you come in contact to are used to being around people who don't look like them, who didn't grow up like them, who don't or may not, you know, engage in the same entertainment that they do or et cetera, right? It's okay to say the wrong things if it's like egregious. I'll tell you in a nice way, but most likely (laughs) um, I'm just happy that you're open to have this conversation and you're okay with being uncomfortable. Like that's, that's great. Thank you again for the, for the permission to, to, to speak freely and, and, and know that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a safe place to visit, you know, cause, and again, I, I look at my, my children and your children and I'm like, I, I just want it better for them. And I don't know what that looks like, but I know, I know we're taking steps toward it. And that's, you know, ultimately I don't know what the progression is from here. I don't know how quickly it's going to happen, but I know it's progressing and it took yet another tragedy, but there's movement. And, um, yeah. But this tragedy is different. I I was even talking on another call last week that in the early 90s, we had Rodney King. You remember that? Sure. Can't we all just get along, right? Right. And we watched the video of this guy being beaten by multiple police and there were riots and people were upset. And then here we are 30 years later and we're seeing the same thing and there's still riots and people are upset. But I think the turning point here, the difference is two things. Um, One we saw from beginning to end, the New York Times actually did a really, really great recap of the George Floyd incident. It's time stamped. It uses three or four different videos from the, I think, Chinese restaurant across the street, a couple of the uh, bystander videos, and I think another security cam uh, footage, some 3D modeling of where people were and what happened. And, and then you see, you know, almost all of the entire eight minutes of the police officer's knee on George Floyd's neck. Um, so regardless of the conversations around George Floyd's background and his felonies and et cetera, what America saw and what the world saw was a man who wasn't fighting back. He wasn't fleeing. He didn't have a weapon. And he was begging for his life. Like, just give me air. And I think what touched so many people's hearts was the fact that there was a lack of humanity in that moment. So that's one turning point is everybody got on the same page. And that's the human page, regardless of race. The second thing that's different about this is that it's not just black people who are mad. It's all races, all cultures, all creeds across the world are upset. And I heard this quote uh, last week. And it really struck me because I never thought about it this way, that to fix bias uh, in the world or to even address bias in the workplace or address bias in business ownership and business value, black people and minorities aren't going to be the ones who have the capacity or the ability to make the change. We've Mm -hmm. all got to work on it together. And it's got to be led by the people who have the money and the power and the influence, which for the most part, aren't African-Americans in our society. And I think that's the turn here is now we've got everybody's attention and people like you who are leading organizations, um, who have access to business owners, who have capital and leadership in their communities um, and a voice to those people. It's people like you. They're going to be the ones that really help our culture turn the corner. That makes total sense. So you want to talk about 
business value and saleability of, of businesses? Yeah, let's get, let's get down to the nuts and bolts. <laughs> I found an article, like I said last night, it, it's entitled Blackout. Why don't black people support black businesses? And in, in that article, it said study after study has proven the biggest factor in determining who gets a business loan and who doesn't is race. And when a black person does get a loan, they pay on average 32% higher interest rates. It's no surprise that our businesses fail fast at a faster rate. And although we make up 13% of the population, just 7% of businesses are owned by blacks. And, and this is what we were talking about before was that why don't African-Americans buy businesses? Why, why does it seem as though African-Americans start businesses? And knowing that the, the failure rate across the board, regardless of ethnicity, you're looking at an 87% failure rate. Why aren't they buying businesses? Part of it is background and legacy. And we can talk about this. I think in a number of different contexts today, but the first is how many African Americans, you know, whose great grandparents owned a business. It wasn't that many because they weren't allowed to, or they didn't have access to the capital to capital in the early 20th century or segregation prevented them from running businesses or they had that business, but it wasn't passed down through generations. Right? So that's one piece the other piece and the biggest is funding. Um, you and I chatted about this really briefly yesterday, uh, and you ran down some of the, some of the statistics. One percent of uh, venture capital is invested in black businesses. Only two percent invested in women. Um, the number of uh, black businesses and minority businesses uh, is increasing in the United States, but their value is decreasing. But the funding issue is really at the core. So. Some of the statistics from the United States Department of Commerce say that businesses owned by African-Americans that are less than half a million dollars are less likely to get approved for a loan. They have less net worth. Therefore, the, the applicants have less net worth. So therefore, they have less cash or capital that they can use to secure a loan. And then, like you just said, the loan amounts tend to be smaller. There's higher interest rates assigned to those loans because the banks see them as a risk. And they get shorter terms, so then the payments are higher. Let me tell you this story. So there's a company called Powers & Sons Construction. They were started in the uh, East Chicago, Chicago area of Indiana, Chicago. They've got a branch here in Indianapolis and I think another office uh, around the Indiana region. The way that this company got started was not necessarily in, in commercial construction, which is where they are now, but it was in building houses. And the problem that uh, African-Americans had in the middle of the 20th century was they may have worked at a factory. They moved north from the Great Migration from the South to you know Detroit or Chicago, et cetera. They got a job making good money. They were able to save a little bit of cash. But one, if they could buy a house uh, in a neighborhood that was essentially owned or constructed by uh, whites during segregation, they couldn't get a loan from the banks, which is part of the same issue we're dealing with now uh, for minority business owners is the disparity and discrepancy in them sure. being, being able to get loans. What Powers and Sons did was they went to a black-owned insurance company, and the insurance company had liquidity because they're like all insurance companies <laughs> sure. sitting on an amount of cash. Um, okay. So then the insurance company made loans through the black construction company so that African-Americans can get homes in, in Chicago and East Chicago, uh, Indiana. 
it's that same type of issue that we're dealing with now. You know, um, African Americans can certainly get loans now from banks, but in underwriting, are there still some unspoken? Not I can't even say rules, but unspoken methods of displacing yeah. and keeping African Americans from getting loans. Well, you know what? And when I was researching this, I, I found twenty two sources of minority access to capital. All of them, every single one, wasn't buying a business. It was starting a business, incubators. The FedEx had a, a grant for African American people that to, to start businesses. And I'm sitting here going, it's the highest risk. What of of course. I mean, and you and I both know that the biggest challenge you know, when you buy a company, it's not only the purchase price that you're paying for, but you're also paying the second check, which is the working capital. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that that's where the challenge is, that it's okay to start it. It's The problem is to keep it going, and they mm-hmm. run out of capital and access to capital. What do you think? I mean, is it, are we on to something or no? It is. And so capitalization is not taught, uh, whether it's how to leverage cash to get an SBA loan or to have enough cash left over to fund working capital. The other piece of this is just psychologically for African-Americans. So we've only had money since for two generations. The generation that is slightly older than you, so really my parents' age, 60 and 70 years old now, they were taught, go get a job. Let, let's pause that right now. Oh. How old? A parent, your parents' oh, age? No, no, no. Older than you, my parents' age. Right. Oh, I got you. I was gonna say I'm not. I'm not that much older than you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I almost said your age, but no, it's it's a, a kind of a half generation before because you're Gen X, right? Let's go with that. Okay. I was born in 69. <laughs> they, they call me an elder millennial because I was born in 81. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, an exennial between Gen X and millennial. Right? <laughs> nice. Um, but they were taught, go get a job, keep the job for 30 years, save your money, retire. Don't risk it. Don't let anybody take it from you and invest it in the safest way possible. So for somebody to take hundred or two hundred thousand dollars out of their uh, you know retirement savings or out of any type of savings vehicle or get a, a home equity loan to fund that type of thing culturally that's not something they would do but to say you know what take 10k and go open up a little coffee shop on the corner and see if you can make a, a go at it while you keep your job sure. um, that's more of the mentality so part of it is is teaching and training and then the other piece is you know even in talking to young entrepreneurs who are looking at acquisition now in our business, I'm having to go through the, the education process of saying, here's what you would need for an SBA loan. Here's the cash that you'll need to fund um, your first six or 12 months until you start to get a cash flow ROI from your debt service. Sure. Here's how to think about debt service and managing that stuff. I mean, it's, it's unless you have an MBA, it's all new for these folks. I see. That's a great segue. And, and, and again, it's back to this research. Black Wall Street. Never, never heard of this. And for those of you that haven't heard of it, and I'm, I'm probably not the, the guy to be sharing it with you, but Black Wall Street, this was a section of Tulsa, Oklahoma, that 100 years ago, they, the racists burned it down. And this area was 12, I, I believe it was 1,200 African-American-owned businesses. It was a, a thriving community, and they burnt it down. The question that it prompted for me, 
was it is more prudent to save than risk for the opportunity to be wealthy. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was the time um, where you had like this black renaissance happening and it happened in music. It happened in art in the early 20th century, 1910, 1930, uh, even stretching to the forties. But it's like the Madam CJ Walker, the W.E.B. Du Bois time where Langston Hughes, where there was uh, literature and music and business. And because of Juneteenth and slavery disbanding, um, you've got this black bourgeoisie culture evolving where suddenly African-Americans were free to have money and their own culture, right? That's kind of that same time period and the, the thought process behind that, that, that time. But once we got to the 50s and Jim Crow really kind of started to strangle that, that growth, the mentality was, and this is especially the people who were born in the 30s and were at the tail end of the spurt of post-slavery time, but also in the throes and heat of Jim Crow, it was, again, go get the job, save your money, do not risk this or you'll screw it up for yourself because you're, you're not in control. Now, on the flip side of that, and a lot of people don't talk about this, but there's a, a school of thought that desegregation in the 60s actually dismantled African-American self-sufficiency. Because you had to have your own, basically, as a community in order to thrive, because you weren't able to go to the places that were segregated or weren't able to have the same access to the places that were segregated. So at that time, pre or during segregation, you had to take risks. You had to open your own business. You had to invest in yourself in your own community. But now you don't have to. So um, there's also this mental shift of now we can rely on uh, the credit systems, we can rely on keeping our small savings and don't risk it. So yeah, that Black Wall Street juxtaposition is really interesting with how life is now because African Americans don't have to be self-sufficient in America and that's decreased our risk tolerance. It totally makes sense. The more I, I dug into this, the more I'm like... I, one of the things that I wanted to ask is, do you believe that minority-owned businesses are valued differently? I know that the buyer pool is probably different. We can talk a little bit about that. But are they valued different? What do you think? Actively, I don't think that black businesses or minority businesses are valued differently. I think there would be very few people in the professional class that would say, well, that's a black business. So instead of a 3X, we're going to give them a 1.5. But... Because of how that business is structured and the knowledge of the business owner, we could come up with a different value consistently across the board. So here are a couple of thoughts on that. One, we talked about this, but there's a legacy issue. So I have a, a Juris Doctorate. Did you know that Black people literally weren't allowed to be attorneys until um, the middle of the 20th century? Like, I know it. Straight up couldn't do it. Right. So that has an impact on cash because attorneys and CPAs and doctors, et cetera, the professional class um, were able to enter the middle class at a higher rate and higher level than um, other professions. So uh, generational cash, there's no money being handed down or inherited through generations. It has an impact on knowledge. So next week, my kid, she's nine. She's going to go to the kid's voice, um, kid's lawyer camp for a day. Right. That wasn't happening two generations sure. ago. So yeah. how does it impact the next generation? 
there's an impact on long-term value and a track record of success because you don't have a business that's been a business for 80 years. It may be 10 years, right? We talked about access to capital. So if that business had to grow organically or they didn't have the knowledge of how to leverage capital uh, or capitalization of secured instruments in order to grow their business, that's going to decrease value. Also, financial literacy, uh, them being able to even put together or run their P&L and cash flow statements and balance sheets themselves or know who to go to to get those things done or know what to ask. Access to professionals, that goes to that too. Good accountants, good attorneys, good financial planners, and having a wide enough network of those people to get to the ones that are really going to help you and give good value and that you can afford. And then also, so risk management knowledge, you know, what type of insurance do you need to protect the business? What type of insurance key, uh, key employee policies and what other type of life insurance vehicles can you use to reinvest your assets? So all of those things are knowledge that aren't widely known. There are a lot of African-Americans who know this stuff uh, really well, but the majority don't. And part of it's because our families don't know those things and we're not passing it on. Like when I look at market data or I, I build out valuations, it's blind. I mean, you, you, you don't have – financial statements don't talk ethnicity. But I, but I wonder when you start talking about the buyer pool, when an African-American business goes up for sale, does the buyer pool all of a sudden become limited? You own a business and I'm replacing you. Does that automatically increase my risk because we look different? I think it does. I think it's I think it's easier for an African American owner to buy, or a business buyer to buy a, a non-black business than it is for a non-black business buyer to buy a, an African American business. You know what I mean? All right. So so let's let's look at this in two ways. Let's go to the highest level of of professionalism here. Let's talk about um, a business that I know. It's located downtown um, in one of the the towers in Indianapolis. Um, it's a technology company. They've been in business twenty five ish years, maybe even thirty. They've got fifty employees. They do technology integrations for governments across the United States, and you know they're worth twenty thirty million bucks. Almost all of their employees are African-American. The, the owner is African-American. He's made an, an intentional decision to hire the most talented African-Americans that he can sure. to surround himself with and also to bring up to the next level. What would you think about buying that business? Good financials, good marketing, good track record, but you know that everybody in there is black. My concern would be that, that I don't possess the same leadership skills as the owner that wouldn't be you know, that doesn't look like me, even though it, it could be, it could be status quo. I'm not going to change anything. We're going to keep doing business as usual. I don't know if they would see me in the same leadership capacity, you know, that you don't know about me, Ed, you know, that, that, mm. that you don't, you don't understand me and, and what it took for me to get here. You know, I think that's, that would be my initial thought that that would, that would cause, it would cause me to look at it more that the investment was more was had greater risk. Yeah, and that that's very fair. So the first thing that you said you don't have the same leadership skills, I would disagree. I think you'd have the same leadership skills, but you wouldn't have the same leadership context. Mm, um, that's, that's better. I like your answer better. Here, here's why I say that: black people or minorities in predominantly white institutions or organizations 
come with additional context that non-Blacks don't have. For example, when I was growing up, my grandma taught me a few things. She said, uh, when you go into stores, keep your hands in your pockets. Don't touch anything. Don't wear a tank top. Don't put a, a stocking cap or a do-rag on, on your head. Don't wear a face mask. Coronavirus, right? Yeah. Uh, which is a little, a little odd <laughs> deal I have to deal with. Um, don't wear a hat. Get a receipt. Get a bag. Even if you're just getting a stick of gum. So those are things, and that's just like the tip of the iceberg. That's the type of thing that people of color think about all the time. I'm in an elevator with a white woman, and and this is like a, a microaggression. Um, and she might stand a little farther away and, and grip her purse. I remember I was in Switzerland studying piano in 1997, and I had practiced too long in the practice room. I had to go to the bathroom really super duper bad. <laughs> and so I was basically running down the hall of the, of the conservatory in Sion, Switzerland. And there is this white French woman who was walking down the hall toward the bathroom as well. They had uh, genderless uh, co-ed bathrooms, sure. right? It's, mm -hmm. it's Europe, <laughs> but I was running behind her and you should have seen her looking eight times behind her <laughs> and kind of walking faster and getting nervous because I was running up to her, right? But I just had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> sure. And so, um, or in parking garages, having to think about if there is especially um, a woman that's a different color walking behind her or flashing the lights on my car so she knows that I'm going to my car and not trying to approach her. And I'm wearing a suit and tie and have $300 Cole Hans on, right? Like, but that's the kind of stuff that contextually a leader that's not African-American would have to think about in those businesses. On the flip side, I've talked to a handful of black buyers, right? So one of them uh, is in the real estate industry. He came to me and said, Hey, you know, I've saved a hundred thousand dollars cash. I want to buy a business. So let's walk through some stuff. So one of the businesses we talked about was in a uh, mid-sized rural-ish town in central Indiana. And he said, yeah, business numbers look good. Yes, it's strategically related to my business. But all the staff is white. They're from a rural area. And I'm really concerned. Would they respect me and respond to me as a black investor and new owner in that business? And that was the concern that took that deal off the table. Sure. So I, I think you're right. It. So, all right. So, so then how do you fix that? Yeah, what do you do? And again, it, it may be just a societal society improves all of a sudden deal flow uh improves between you know uh that an investment is an investment regardless of the color of your skin yeah but you've also got to think about actually being able to go in and, and lead that business yeah I, I right yeah. unless there's a manager in place and you're silent and just running money in the background but like what small business is running like that well i'll tell you it you know you were talking about the examples you were given you know and what and this whole thing, you know, a couple things have happened. One, you know, at Butler, I had a couple guys that were were on my floor. We played football together, and you know, these are good, good guys. And all of a sudden, I see on I saw on Facebook both of these guys were saying, "Yeah, how I was profiled at when I was at Butler," and I sat there and I'm like, you know, what a terrible friend I was that I didn't know. And, and I didn't know that they were experiencing this. And and they 
they kept it to themselves. And then, you know, I learned uh, from this, um, you know, I put it in our corporate newsletter, the Vadi Bacham uh, video about the African-American talk is not about sex. It's about how to not be profiled or if you're profiled, how to how to effectively withstand that. It, it resonates with me. And, and again, it's been, you know, last few weeks have certainly been an education. And before, before our chat today, you were talking about, you know, the opportunity they may have to swing by your house sometime and visit and et cetera. I've got to actively think about coming to Carmel. Sure. Um, I just saw a statistic that um, African-Americans are 18 times more likely, and this is by the state arrest statistics, to be arrested in Carmel than in Marion County. And Fishers, I think it was four times more likely. Yesterday, I went to the Indiana Gun Club and I did some trap shooting around lunchtime. Everybody knows 116th Street is a speed trap, but especially if you're a black guy and a black Cadillac with tinted windows. So literally, I set my cruise control at 40 miles an hour. People were passing me by, upset, honking, whatever. But I said, you know what? I'm in Hamilton County and I am not about to get profiled today sure. with a shotgun in the back of my car. <laughs> so, well, you know, you've, you got to be thoughtful. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, so I, I, so I have a police officer in my Bible study, a, a Carmel police officer, and mm-hmm. maybe he's the exception. I don't know, but he is the most welcoming. I mean, it, it wouldn't matter who, who's driving up Carmel. So I, so being a resident, it's hard to imagine that Carmel has is that myopic in in their acceptance of others? I just I don't see it, but I do I don't. But I'm not but I'm not not in your shoes. So it statistics are what they are. What we what we've learned about empirical data is it is what it is. And it's hard to manipulate um those kinds of st- statistics. So Yeah, and I so I, I do have to, have to say that there are there are wonderful people and Carmel generally, um and wonderful <laughs> people who are police officers, right? I mean there's the most police officers are really good people and they're in it because they want it. Well, the adrenaline's great and the job is really fun. I'd love to be a police officer if I was 10 years younger right, and doing something else, but they're in it because they want great communities. And I don't even think that there is intentional bias in Carmel policing, but in any community, if somebody is different, you take a second look at who that person is. Even if it's somebody in your neighborhood, like, you know, the people on your cul-de-sac, if you see somebody, you know, you're like, who's this guy, right? It raises a flag. In the city of Zionsville, I think uh, the minority population is two to 3%. Most of that are um, Eastern or Central Asians, and there's even fewer African-Americans. So if you see a minority driving through Zionsville, most, and if you haven't seen them before, you know that they don't necessarily, they're not from the community, right? Yeah. And I think that's the thing, that's the turning point. And what's the likelihood you're going to be able to buy a, you would want, like you were on the example you were saying, what's the likelihood that in that context, what's the likelihood you're you're going to want to invest in a business in, in that area? You know, are you going to be accepted? Are you willing to risk that kind of capital, not knowing whether or not, like I said, how well you, it, you'll be received? I'm certain my wife has been texting me. Have you said anything stupid yet? But I'm 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 ramping up. Um, I can affirmably say that you have not. <laughs> <laughs> so, as I said when we first got started, the brokerage is probably representative of a lot of businesses. We're welcoming, but we don't know. 
So we're not very diverse, not because of intentionality. It's just, that's just the way it's happened. After all these podcasts, I've learned two real big takeaways. One, it's about, can you work yourself out of a job? So it's truly an investment. And number two, it's about people. And when we start talking about people, in our case, it's about deal guys. It's about how do we facilitate an environment that's collaborative, that we all can serve the people that we serve. But at the same time, our business or any other business has to be sensitive where perhaps we weren't before. But now all of a sudden there's a, a great deal of awareness. So, so what I was hoping that you could talk to me a little bit about is for those business owners that say have 20 employees and less or 50 employees, I don't care what the number is. How do you now become more, more sensitive to diversity? And I know people have been talking about this for years, but now, now it's in small business land. Now it's not just you know the the Google saying you know what we're we're going to commit 130 million dollars to helping the the black community. Well, all right, how does our shop help the black community? How do we? How are we more sensitive? In this environment of COVID nineteen, and then also racial prejudice and bias hyper awareness. And you actually posted this article recently, and I have reposted because it talked about how valuation and business analysis has changed for buyers. And one of the things that was in that article said, buyers should now look at what that company's risk management plan is, and also their disaster preparedness and recovery plan is. Is that plan documented? How has it been implemented? What changes have come since COVID-19, right? And um, how has the company responded? The same thing goes for uh, bias and and diversity plans, especially in, again, this hyper-aware time. So as buyers were considering and looking at companies not only is COVID-19 a piece of that analysis, but also diversity, race, and inclusion should be a piece of that analysis. And part of that analysis is how has the company thought about three things? One, implicit bias. Second is microaggressions. And third is creating a value-based KPI, essentially. So we can't attack this, and I'll hit the third thing first. We can't attack this like affirmative action and say, well, if we hire not just three African-Americans as mailroom guys or custodians or secretaries, but three professionals who have a seat at the table in decision-making capacities, then we're good, right? No, still not good. Because then you've got to deal with implicit bias and microaggressions. So first is implicit bias. And that is thinking everyone is the same and treating them that way. But the reality is that we're all different. Regardless of our skin color, we're we're all coming from a different context. So implicit bias doesn't necessarily show up as active racism or active prejudice because rarely do we see that anymore. Most people, uh, especially in our culture and environment, would say, you know, that's pretty disgusting, Bob, (laughs) right? Even if you don't say it, you turn that channel or that person off because you don't want to be around that kind of human being. But how this shows up in the workplace is it's very slight, like... So you've got an annual retreat, and part of the annual retreat is a golf outing. Uh, Well, if you are an African-American who was the first person in your family to go to college and you grew up in an urban, low-income area, right? how many opportunities did you have to learn golf when you were little? 
people, right? So either you show up to the golf outing and you don't know how to golf, you wear the wrong clothes, you don't have the equipment, you feel uncomfortable in the environment because of all those things put together, or you don't go at all. And then what do they think of Jamar who doesn't show up to the team event? Jamar doesn't want to be part of the culture. Jamar isn't a team player. Mm -hmm. Jamar isn't showing up as a leader in our organization. No, he's just uncomfortable because he's never done this before and didn't want to make a fool of himself, right? You know, that's something to think of. I'm not saying don't have the golf outing, but just think a little bit more broadly about how this is impacting not just people of color, but also women or people of different ages, right? Well, historically, we've never had Martin Luther King Day as a day off in, in the office. And I just instituted that when I was rewriting our policy manual. When I did it, I didn't think much about it. You know, when, when I hired you, I, I was like, all right, you know, this is, we need to do this. Before, I didn't do it. And so now I'm sitting here going, well, I wonder what Jamar thinks of, of this addition, whether it was way to go, this is, this is a step in the right direction, or you know what? It should have been there all along and you're an idiot. You know, and, and, that's, and both of them are, are viable. How would you see that? Because I'm certain a lot of business owners are sitting in the same seat saying, all right, I, I want to do something, but I don't want it to be seen as though the motivation is anything other than pure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Martin Luther King Day off doesn't do anything for our corporate culture for diversity. What would be better for our corporate culture for diversity is getting more young black brokers or young people of color who are brokers in the industry. Because I'll tell you what, I will for sure in our office and in the state of Indiana, I'm the youngest and blackest thing in business brokerage. <laughs> um, across the country, uh, we are in a super minority. Um, so, you know, what can we do to bring more people in the business? And part of what uh, gives me fight to do well in this business is I've got a seat at the table in something that one, very few people have an opportunity to do regardless of their background, but especially people who are young and people who are of color. The other thing is, what can we do to intentionally bring the vast knowledge that we have to African-American communities? What can we do to advocate and make sure, like you and I were talking about this idea yesterday, um, there are a lot of African-Americans who don't have the down payment for a new SBA loan, right? They, they can't get funding because they don't have money, but they uh, don't have money because they can't get funding, right? It's sure. a chicken and egg thing. Yeah. Um, so what can we do to advocate with all of our banking relationships and say, hey, how can we figure out um, a low to no down payment loan for business acquisition, specifically for minority communities, right? There's some grants out there, but again, you've got to be on top of your finances. Right. Uh, you got to be on top of your finances. I remember trying to get a small business grant through BOI, through the Indy Chamber, and their financial guy came to my office and looked through three years of my financial statements in order to get that done. But it's because I had them and I had a good accountant and I was ready for it, right? Yeah. Like one day isn't going to make the difference uh, in terms of the culture of our office, but how are we actively engaging new and more mm. leaders, not only in our yeah. business, but in the community? Yeah, that makes sense. Second are microaggressions as a thing to think about in terms of corporate culture and how that impacts who's able to take on your business next or your analysis of a new business that you're about to add to your portfolio. Microaggressions are essentially comments or acts that aren't meant to be racist, but are. We talked about some of the microaggressions earlier, shopkeepers watching uh, African-Americans, uh, shoppers more closely, 
um, you know, how you feel when a group of black teenagers is in an elevator with you, whether you're a man or a woman, like what kind of rises up inside of you? Statements like, I had a black friend once, or you speak so well, or, well, you're not a thug like the other guys. Some of that stuff may come off well-meaning. You said, Ed, you don't want sure. to say the wrong thing. Those are the wrong things to say. <laughs> There's a well, short right. list. Well, let's, so, so let's stop there. So, so I, I've, always, I've always said, all right, brother, something like that. And at the end of, you know, we would be talking, you know, um, like like brothers in Christ kind of thing. I said that to you and I'm like, and now, like I said, it's amplified. I'm sitting here saying, well, that was a dumb thing to say. And what was that? Even though it's the right, the right context from the heart, was it the wrong context that to say that, you know what I mean? I think that you said a microaggression. Yeah, it it is not to me because I I know you. And I think that like, you're just brothers. I mean, it's like, your drive turkey. It's like 1970s talk, right? <laughs> the good old um, days. <laughs> um, not that I was around in the 70s, but like I get it. You know, it's just it's a, it's a colloquialism. But I think if you're at the gas station and said that to some random, especially older uh, black person, they they would see that as a microaggression. Yeah. Again, I've been in PWIs, predominantly white institutions, my in- entire life since I was little. And I'll tell you two stories. One that happened consistently 10 years ago is nobody could figure out my name. My name's easy. It's Jamar. And it was funny. Uh, one of our partners at the firm heard me on the phone and I was spelling my name very slowly and every single letter, right? And he said, um, you know, if you have to uh, spell your name like that and tell it to him three times... They don't deserve to do business with you. And I was like, you know what? You're right. But it's a hangover from 10 years ago when people will call me Jerome, Lamar, Jamal, everything but my name. And that person may have known me for two, three, four years. It's like, you you can't get it right. You know, Um, when I was in elementary school, again, I was the only black kid in my school. I had a high top 1990s fade and Isaiah Thomas, right? Nice. So all the kids like to touch my hair. Cause it felt really? different, felt cool, kind of like a sponge. Right. Sure. And so during lunchtime, the fourth, fifth and sixth graders would walk through the, the younger kids cafeteria to go downstairs to the second cafeteria. And many of them would touch my hair because they liked it and they thought it was cool. And I thought they were being friendly, but that was a microaggression and an aggression aggression. But here's sure. the key to the story is one day I wrote a little note cause I was getting tired of it and I put it in my hair and said, please don't touch hair. They took the note, continued to touch my hair, gave it to the lunch aide, and then I got in trouble no. because I put a sign in my hair that said, please stop touching me. Really? So uh, that exact story may not show up in our organizations, sure. but that type of culture and that type of thinking in small ways can show up where people who are different than a majority are treated differently or are reprimanded because of something that is part of just who they are. Yeah, I get it. Uh, I mean, I say I get it. Not, and, and again, while this tragedy is, is it, it, it truly is a tragedy, but the good, like, like, uh, you know, the Bible says, I mean, that, you know, all work, all things together for our good. I, I do believe that. And I do believe that, you know, this is, this is good that, that there's more awareness and it, and it's coming quicker. You know, so it's accelerating the, the conversations like ours. And um, 
And, and again, and, and I think a lot of business owners, I think their heart's in the right place, but the fear of, I don't want to offend. I don't want this to be a lightning rod. I don't want, you know, this to come off wrong. As we know with business owners, they would rather do nothing than, than, than stick their neck out. Um, and, and I'm referring to exit planning now. So, I mean, how do you, how do you get around that? Um, so I'm going to answer your question quickly and then I do want to circle back to something that's Uh-oh. related, but unrelated. Um, so one, if you're afraid to stick your neck out, one, don't be afraid because it's the people with hate that are going to win. If the people who have good hearts mm-hmm. that want to do right by our communities and want to make our business community better and want to bring value to other businesses, right? Like what other way to bring great value to the African-American community than to buy a high performing business and inject money back into those families, right? Sure. Um, so don't be afraid and take a risk. And if you need help, ask for it. So like, I'm a good conduit for a, you know, executive leadership conversation with a team. I'm a good conduit for uh, professional associations and delivering the same type of content to have real, but comfortable, but also emotionally um, vulnerable talks. Right. Sure. I definitely w- would agree with it. You have made, even though you can't see that I'm sweating, you have, you have made the conversation really easy. Yeah. I think it's that professional lighting that I can't see that you're sweating. It's, it's that podcast <laughs> swag. Ed. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, but go, go get help, whether it's from me or for some, from somebody else, you know, I've had, I've had professional associations that I work with, send me emails and say, who, who can I get to talk about this? Right. Cause we want to learn. I'll share some resources uh, toward the end of our conversation here about how to become a better ally. There's so much stuff online. Even if you Google how to be a better ally, it, I mean, just lists of stuff, but I'll give you the, the top few that I, I really did some um, thoughtful thinking around what's, what's actually impactful, but let's go back just a minute. We're talking about truth at work and you said all things work together for good, but the rest of that scripture is all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and were called according to his purpose. So one, there's got to be love in our hearts for this. This is about humanity. And as business owners, the best leaders are those who are vulnerable and vulnerability takes love. The second thing are those who are called according to his purpose. And as Christians, um, we're called to pray. And this is a heart thing. We can't change people's hearts. We can't erase prejudice and racism by legislating our way out of it. The way that we're really going to get to the next level is we've got to have the people who know how to pray, who are called to lead, pray and get through to the person who can actually change hearts. And that's Jesus. You know what I wanted to, the last thing I wanted to talk about is your new program. Bye-bye business bias. Tell me about that. And, and, uh, you know, how can, how can we come alongside you and, and, and help with that? Sure. So we talked about a lot of the key points in Bye Bye Business Bias. One is identifying um, implicit bias, what it is, how it shows up in organizations. Second, uh, what are microaggressions? Uh, how do they show up in organizations? But third and most important, how do we create a value-based system of KPIs that we can drive our companies with? Not just let's hire three black people and call it a day, but how do we create a culture that has checks and balances within itself that we really not only value diversity, but have values that support anti-bias and that support 
equity in our organizations. That can show up in one of three ways. One is internal workshops with teams. And I've had a lot of business leaders call me directly and say, hey, how do I work through this thing? And uh, you know, let's, let's sit down and work through it as a team and develop that that uh, anti-bias KPI. Second is the associations that I mentioned earlier and really thinking broadly and industry-wide about how bias is showing up in organizations and um, how we can create equity. But third, there will be some public presentations of this program. So you know, just keep an eye on, on email and LinkedIn promotion uh, for some public access to this as well. For all of my podcasts, I, I always ask every guest you know, what piece of advice they would give the business owner that would make the biggest or have the greatest impact on value. So instead of that, you know, what is the one thing that a business owner can do to eliminate bias in their, in their business? I think it's what you've done, Ed, and it's listen and act and don't be afraid. Have the courage to really look this thing in the face. I heard an interesting quote that you don't tell victims to fix the abuser. And uh, we talked about this earlier, about who really it takes to fix some of the issues that we're seeing in America. And it's the people with the power and the money who the majority are not African-Americans. So, you know, Google ally resources, Google uh, what are and how do we address microaggressions, Google uh, the implicit bias, implicit bias test, Google Eddie Moore's uh, 21-day racial equity challenge to look these things in the face and really start to self-educate and figure your way around this stuff because whether you're building your business for sale and want to make sure that it's strong and can transition if you have a diverse workplace, whether you're evaluating a business for sale and you want to make sure that you're not purchasing a risk because there's inequities in the workplace, or if you're looking at the finances and uh, really trying to figure out why this business may have a higher or lower value or multiple than you expect, these are the things and, and part of the context that we've got to think about when we listen and act, don't be afraid and face this stuff. So what's the best way we can, we can get in contact with you? So my name is Jamar Cobb Denard. I'm sure you've got the links in my name uh, up here. And um, whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook, that's actually the link to those profiles. And that's the best way to one, stay in touch, second, stay engaged and third, directly contact me. There's been some really good decisions that I've had the opportunity of making, and one of them is is you. And I would have I would have hired hired you regardless. Um, but I am so grateful. I'm I'm grateful for all the education and patience. And I know full well that uh, you know you're not going to stomp on me when I when I make the mistake because it, it's inevitable to to come. So I I certainly appreciate your friendship. I'm certain you're going to be extremely successful in our profession and and quite frankly I'm looking forward to seeing what collaboratively we can do together for the for this community. So thanks so much for being here and like I said we'll have everything that we talked about in the show notes and and uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. This was another episode of the Defenders of Business Value Podcast. For more episodes packed with strategies to increase the value of your business, visit DefendersOfBusinessValue.com for show notes, transcripts, and free tools to start you on your journey. Subscribe now so you don't miss any future episodes.